Today I'm continuing to talk about discipleship and we're now into our fourth teaching on this and I tell you, we have covered some powerful things. If you could get hold of the things that I've talked about and I mean implement this in your life, I guarantee you it would move you to a new level. I really believe that. I encourage you to please go to the next step and get these materials and go through our discipleship materials and just try this and see if it doesn't make a huge difference in your life. Uh, I've been ministering from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. I hadn't even finished that sentence yet. If you've missed any of this, you really need to get this, because this is something that most people do not practice today. They are victims instead of victors because they think that it's all of these external things and people that have made them bitter and hurt and defeated and things like this. And I've been teaching from these verses that you can't control what other people do, but you can totally control how you react to what other people do. That's what Paul is talking about when he says, don't let any man despise thy youth. You can't stop people from despising you, but you can stop that despising from getting on the inside of you and affecting you. How do you do it? He says, but be an example. Just stay on track to keep doing what God told you to do. If you get off of the track and into the grandstands arguing with the spectators, even if you win the argument, you're going to lose the race. Stay on track. Boy, those are powerful truths. And now I want to talk about how do you be an example. It says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. And here's the first thing, in word. When it says in word, this is talking about the words that come out of your mouth. And the context of this is don't let any man despise you. It's talking about an adverse situation where there's criticism, something coming against you, and you just keep on doing the right thing. And how do you give them this example? You need to control your words. You need to say wholesome words. You don't need to strike back at people when they strike at you. You don't need to say things that hurt people. And I tell you, this is so hard for people to do. James said this over in James chapter 3, that the tongue is an unruly evil that no man can tame. It is set on fire and it is set on fire of hell. In the book of James, chapter 3, it talks about if you can control your tongue, you are a perfect man. That doesn't mean sinless. It means you're a complete man. You're a mature person. It takes some maturity to control your words. And most people aren't even giving it any effort. Most people use their words. I mean, it is unbelievable, the sarcastic, critical things. You know, we have a lot of... uh, This program is heard all over the world, and some people may not be aware of this. But we have a lot of talk shows in the United States, conservative talk shows, and it's really important because we have such a liberal, biased media that they just aren't presenting the truth. And so, in a sense, we have to have this conservative culture to be able to get the right take on things. And so there is a place for it. I'm not trying to criticize it. But many of these talk show hosts are so sarcastic. I think sarcasm is probably one of the most harsh uh, ways of responding to things that you can possibly get. And even though I agree with a lot of the conservative views 
and that there is some good being done, the, the words that are spoken, the mean, hateful, terrible things that are said, it's just tough. You know what? I, I believe that uh, they have a place, but I can guarantee you they wouldn't serve very well as a minister to talk and to do things the way that they do. The Bible says that our words should be seasoned with grace and with, with salt and that it ought to be for the benefit and the edification of the hearers. And there's just so many times that people say these hateful, cutting things. So let me apply all this again back to our situation. If you are having somebody despise your youth, and it may not be your youth, they may despise your color, they may despise the gospel that you're preaching, they may despise your stance on morality, they may despise you because they don't like red hair, or, you know, all of the different prejudices that different people have. If somebody's despising you and you're just going to go ahead and be an example, well, how, how do you do that? The words that you speak has to be a part of this example. You cannot lash back at people with your tongue. Boy, that's important. And yet, I tell you, just like those verses I quoted out of James chapter 3, only a mature person can do this. This is why you've got to be discipled. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if you're bitter, and if you're angry, and if you're hurt, and if you're upset, I guarantee you it's going to come out your mouth. And it's going to take some maturity for you to get over this and begin to start looking at things differently and get to where you can speak something positive to people that hate you. And I know that some of you right now are thinking, well, I don't even care to try. Well, then you're, you're not a disciple. You aren't following the leading that's given in the Word of God. It's telling you that you are supposed to control your tongue. You aren't supposed to lash out at people. You know, I've got some nationally known ministers that have branded me as Jim Jones, said I'm the slickest cult that has ever come out. If I was to tell you their name, many of you would know them. I've had people do things against me like this, and yet I have never spoken evil of that person. I don't understand all the reasons, but I'm not mad at them. I have blessed them. I have sent them money when their church got in trouble. And I've sent them money after they said these things. They're a good minister. I honestly don't know exactly why they got so offended at me, but I'm not mad at them, and I have not sinned against them with my tongue. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying that, you know, it can be done. I have blessed this person. I have even held a convention where both of us were speakers, and I, we were invited, and I've spoken with them, and I treated them just as if nothing had ever happened. I didn't lash out with, them, with my tongue at them. And in that instance I'm talking about, they still haven't repented. But you know what? I've done this with dozens of other people who at one time were mad at me and I just keep speaking well of them. And you know what? That you just keep doing what God told you to do. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. I will repay. And God has come in and defended me and put me back into relationships with some of the very people that have criticized me. And one of the reasons it's able to happen is because I didn't compound the situation by the words that I say. Boy, that's powerful. I, I believe that this is more powerful than what most people recognize. You know, we've got these old cliches about if you can't say something good, don't say anything at all. All, all of us have heard that, but very few people observe it. But it really is true. You're hung by the tongue. 
Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And you can release death or life. You can either speak life into a situation or you can speak death. And the sad fact is most of us are retaliating with our tongue and you're going to have to change this if you really want to keep uh, other people, what they are saying and doing from affecting you. The moment you get down to their level and you start criticizing them and fighting back, you know what, you have just opened up the door to all of this and that that anger and that stuff that they're saying against you, the criticism they're saying against you, it will come into you through your tongue. If you start speaking negative things, man, that opens up a door to the devil. It says in James chapter 3, verse 16, and again, I've, I've quoted from that already twice, talking about words, controlling the words that you speak, and only a perfect man or a mature man is able to control his tongue. It's like a fire and it's set on fire of hell. In that context, talking about the tongue, it says in James three sixteen, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. It didn't say a lot of evil works, some evil works. You open up a door to anything the devil wants to do in your life when you get into strife. Now, people may be mad at you, but that doesn't mean that you have to be mad at them. You can say, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Just because people are mad at you doesn't mean that you are in sin. Jesus had people mad at him. People crucified him. People constantly said, you are of Beelzebub. And they did all kinds of things. But Jesus didn't get mad at them. Jesus wasn't in sin. So don't think that just because somebody is mad at you, that you have to be in strife. You can speak positive words. But if you don't, and if you do get into strife with them, you open up a door to every evil work, anything. And it's amazing how many people do not understand why they are in the mess that they're in. They have, like say for instance, financially things are falling apart and they've paid their tithes and they know that God wants them to prosper and they just can't understand why they're not prospering. They're sick and yet they know the scriptures that promise healing and they sit there and say, by his stripes I'm healed and they're praying and they've had people lay hands on them and they just can't understand why they're sick. And they don't connect these dots that we're envying and strife is. There is confusion in every evil work. You could say there is confusion and poverty. There is confusion and sickness. It just opens up a door to whatever the devil wants to do in your life. And many people just don't recognize that. They, they watch too much television and in these sitcoms, everybody yells at each other and everybody gets angry. They go back to their childhood and man, I mean, it was just typical that you just vented they go to psychology today and psychology will tell you that you're in denial if you suppress your feelings. You just need to let it all out. Curse the people. Say anything you want to. This is wisdom. No, it's demonic. Death and life are in the power of your tongue and don't use your tongue to release death. Speak life. Recognize that if you get into strife with the words that you say and if you go to retaliating with people, you have just flung the door wide open to the devil, not only for sickness, not only for poverty, but like in the context here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, if they despise you, if they are critical of you, you know what? They're despising. Their criticism is going to get on the inside of you if you get down and start retaliating with your tongue. 
whether or not you're talking to them. Maybe you're just talking to a friend about them. That's not what the Scripture tells us to do. If you really have a problem, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus told you to go to your brother and talk to him alone. And until you talk to him alone, then you don't take anybody else. You know, if we would just follow that instruction, it would stop all kinds of problems. You know, I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm saying it to enlighten you so that we can get over this, so that we can become disciples and begin to act like Christians instead of like carnal people who call themselves Christians. So I'm not saying this to hurt you, but brothers and sisters, there's people that I guarantee you when somebody criticizes you, when somebody, you know, gives you a cold shoulder, does something, the first thing you do is run to a friend and tell them what this person did. And you may even couch it in, I'm telling you so that you'd pray. You can, you can try and whitewash this any way you want to, but you aren't doing what Jesus told you to do. If a person has really offended you, and if they are a brother in the Lord, then the, Jesus told you, Matthew chapter 18, go to that person alone. Don't you talk to anybody else about what's happened until you talk to the person who has done it. And if you say, well, I don't want to confront them. It's not that big of a deal. Well, then forget it. If it's not that big of a deal, quit if it's not worth you following the instructions of Scripture, then it's not worth you talking to anybody else about it. I could go on and on. Like I said, I could talk about this for a lot, but there's a lot here. If you want to overcome the criticism and the rejection of other people, you're going to have to do it by example, and you're going to have to control your word. That's the very first thing he says. Be an example of the believers in word. You're going to have to get to where you don't speak with bitterness and anger in your heart. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can tell what's in a person by the way they talk. And you know, if they just always have a chip on their shoulder, it's going to come out. You need to resolve this and you need to get to where you control these words. I'm not talking about that you just say the right thing and in your heart you are harboring hatred and stuff, but you're just going to be a hypocrite and say what you know you should say. No, I'm saying you need to control what's on the inside, but you need to monitor your words because they are an indication to you about whether or not your heart is right in this area. And if somebody hurts you, if they criticize you, if something happens, and if you want to retaliate, and if you go to all of your friends and you start spreading this cancer, that's what it is. The Bible says that there, you know, this bitterness is like a cancer. And if you are bitter and hurt, you are spreading that hurt and pain among other people. If you're doing that, it ought to be an indication to you that something's not right in your heart, that you have let somebody else despise you. You aren't secure in the Lord. You're insecure. You are so hurt because you placed value on them that it's overriding what God has to say about you. And it ought to show you these things, and it ought to drive you to your knees to say, God, forgive me for placing so much value on their opinion. God, forgive me for being so hurt when you love me, and I ought to be accepted, I, I ought to be satisfied with the fact that you love me. And yet most people aren't. And they have to have the validation of all of these people. It, need, it should drive you to your knees and deal with that and then get to where you speak life over it. Speak positive things. Bless. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Bless and curse not. And that's in the same context Romans chapter 12, where he says, Vengeance is mine. 
You bless them. Let God deal with them. Let God handle them. God can handle them better than you can. Amen. Boy, that's powerful. Again, there is so much that I could say about that. He goes on to say that you're supposed to be an example to the believers in word. In conversation is the next thing. You know, to uh, us today, the word conversation is usually talking about the words that you speak to somebody. So it seems redundant or just a repeat of what he had already said. But in the Old English, in the King James here, the word conversation is talking about a manner of life. The way you conduct your life. So it's not just talking about words that you speak, but conversation here means the way you conduct your life. And you need to just go on and do what God told you to do. Live a godly life regardless of people's criticism. And as I gave testimony earlier when I was uh, talking about this, uh, God will defend you. And over the years, people will see your godliness And it will change their opinion. I've had many people who at one time condemned me and criticized me come back and say, you know what, I can see that God is with you and that you are blessed and I think you were right and I was wrong. I've had a lot of people say that. And that really is the only way that you can ever convince any person. You can't argue a person into things. You know, when I first got started in ministry, I was so gung-ho that, man, I would argue at the drop of a hat and I would drop my hat to get to argue. I mean, I just thought that I could force people, I could convince them. And I mean, I put a lot of effort, a lot of passion into it. I gave it everything I got. And I may have won a few arguments and made a person back down right then, but you know what? I have never argued anybody into anything. And over the years as I've grown, I've just gotten to where I won't argue with people. I've had people come and want to argue with me. They, were ex- they are exactly like I was at one time. But I've just seen the futility of it. Now, if a person is accepting the truths that I'm saying and they say, I believe, but what about this scripture? Well, I'll explain things. I'll help a person believe, but that, to, to me, that's not arguing. But to take a person who is just antagonistic and they don't want to believe and I'm going to sit there and debate it with them, I won't do that. I just have given that up. I tell them I've got all kinds of materials. You can get it and you can find out what I know if you want it. But I won't argue with the person. You cannot argue a person into faith. It has to come by revelation. They have to seek it and they have to submit to it. I tell you, there are many of us that are limiting what God can do through us because we aren't being an example in our conversation, in our way of living. We are trying to argue people and we're trying to convince people instead of just living it in front of them. Now, there's a balance to this. There are some people who will never share and they'll never speak the truth and they'll never even give God credit. They just say, I'm letting my light shine. Well, you know what? If you are just living a moral life and doing the right thing, but if you never let people know that it's because God has changed your life, then that's not what I'm talking about. I believe that we need to give credit to God when credit is due. We need to let Him know. We need to let people know that it's God that has done these things. So there's a balance between this, but I am saying that there are people who are trying to say all of these things and make things happen when the Scripture here is saying, just be an example in the words that you speak and in the way that you live. Let your life say things.
There's a song that I used to sing back in the Baptist church and it says, What you are, speak so loud that the world can't hear what you say. They're, list, they're not listening to your talk. They're looking at your walk. They're judging by their, your actions every day. Don't believe that you'll deceive by pretending what you've never known. They'll judge by what they see and know you to be. They'll judge by your life alone. Man, that's pretty powerful. And you know what? You need to, yes, proclaim the gospel, but the main thing is you need to walk it. doesn't matter how high you jump. When you hit the ground, make sure you're walking straight. Make sure that you are living a godly life. Make sure that you are living it in front of them. And the scripture says if you'll do that, you'll win over some of these gainsayers, some of the critics. I don't believe that this is a promise that every person will agree with you because even Jesus didn't have that happen. It's you've got to be an example. Just keep doing what God told you to do. And it says be an example in word. We've talked about that in conversation as meaning your manner of life, your lifestyle. This isn't just talking about words. The next thing it says in charity. And of course, charity is an old English word for God's kind of love. Today, we nearly use it exclusively to refer to something like uh, some kind of a nonprofit organization that takes in donation or money and give it to the poor. And the reason we use that word to describe them is because this word, charity, is describing God's kind of love as expressed in actions. In other words, it's not just somebody saying they love you, but it has to be an expressed, acted on love. And today we use this word just nearly exclusively for these, you know, non-profit organizations, but it literally is talking about a God kind of love that expresses itself in actions. Again, this is part of discipleship. These are basically areas that we need to be discipled in. The words that you speak, the way that you live, walking in love to people. You know, it says over in uh, Colossians, or excuse me, Titus chapter 2, it's giving instructions to the older men and then it says to the older women to teach them, to teach the younger women to love their husbands and to love their families. Now, some people just skip over that and don't think about it, but it says teach them to love their husbands and to love their children. You know, most people today think that you either fall in love and out of love. We have this concept of a naked baby with a bow and arrow that shoots you, Cupid, and you fall in love, and you just can't control it. And people will say, I love my wife, but then they just get, they see somebody walk by, and it's just chemistry. It's fate, and they just can't control it. And that's the impression that some people have of love, and it comes and goes, and that you can't get a handle on it. This says that you should teach people to love. And again, I know that that's a radical concept and this goes against our Western culture where we fall in love with people. But just look around at how well this, this attitude is working. Look at the divorce rate. Look at the terrible relationships that so many people have. I tell you, this whole concept of falling in love and falling out of love, it's actually lust that people fall into and out of. You can teach yourself to love. You can choose to love. I have chosen to love people who've hated me, and I have just chosen to do it. I didn't feel like it. Matter of fact, if I'd have followed my feelings, it would have led me in a different direction. But I chose to love them. There's a lot of people that I've told myself, God loves them, and if God loves them, how can I not love them? And I've just chosen to love them. I force myself to love them. 
And I know that this is contrary to a lot of people and they think you can't do it. But this is what he's talking about, that you need to walk in charity, in a love, a God kind of love that is expressed in your actions. And I guarantee you as a minister, Paul was speaking to Timothy and he had hundreds and maybe thousands, possibly up to 100,000 people that were under him in this church that that was in Ephesus. And I guarantee you there are some people in church that are unlovely. (laughs) That's just saying the truth. It's sometimes hard to love people, but Paul was saying you love them. You operate in charity towards them. Boy, there's so much that could be said. I've got at least two or three albums that talks about God's kind of love to you, God's kind of love through you, how to get along with other people, and on and on it goes. And all of these teachings are on love. Basically, you can't give away something that you don't have. And if you're into a performance-based relationship with God, to where you think God only loves you when you're worth loving, and when you do something wrong, God rejects you, turns a cold shoulder to you, if that's your concept then it's going to be impossible for you to go around and turn the other cheek and love people who are unlovely because you just don't, you've never received it for yourself and you can't give it away until you receive it. So you need to understand how much God loves you. See, this is part of discipleship. You need to get established in that. And once you realize that you've been forgiven this huge debt that you could never pay back, then you'll be able to turn to people that in comparison to the transgression that all of us have had against God. It's an insignificant debt that people owe us and you'll be able to turn around and forgive them. See, these these are things in, in discipleship. You need to accept responsibility. Quit blaming everybody else and your dysfunctional family and the color of your skin and your economic situation and the fact that you don't have an education and don't let other people's rejection and criticism of you get on the inside. How do you do it? by acting, by example. And you need to learn how to control your tongue. You need to learn how to live a straight life. You need to learn to walk in love towards other people. The next thing it lists here, it says in spirit. And this spirit here, if you look it up in the Greek, the word pneuma, it means a mental disposition. It can also refer to a part of you like spirit, soul, and body. But in this case, it's not talking about that you need to be an example to people in spirit, talking about that born-again part of you because you can't see the spirit. This is talking about your mental disposition. And I believe, again, we could teach on this for a long time, but it's just basically talking about that there ought to be a, a positiveness, an optimism about you if you are a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It ought to show in your attitude. I meet Christians all of the time that they just, they look miserable. I mean, they, it's, it's so obvious in their life. It's on their face, their body language. Everything about them is miserable. And then they go knock on somebody's door and say, don't you want to be like me? Everybody says, no, I don't want to be like you. You know what? You're supposed to be an example in an attitude. You ought to be positive. And I'm not talking about faking it, but you need to get before the Lord and get your mind renewed And get to a place to where, just like Jesus was talking about the end times, there would be war and rumors of war, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. When these things begin to happen, lift up your eyes and rejoice because your redemption draws nigh. You need to look at everything through the prism of God's Word and you need to have a mental attitude to where, praise God, you are positive. 
and you have a spirit about you that just sets you apart from the world. There are so many Christians that if they were arrested for being a Christian, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict them. I mean, they, they gripe, they complain, they're worried about the same things that a non-believer is worried about. They're fearful of the same things. They're, that's not the way it's supposed to be. A Christian is supposed to be a joyful person. It says, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. I believe that's Psalm 16, 11. And you should be in the presence of the Lord all of the time. Even if you are sick, even if you're suffering, if people persecute you, if there's problems going on, you are in the presence of the Lord. It should show. You have, should have a mental disposition, a spirit that glorifies God. I'm not saying any of these things to condemn you, but I'm saying that this is what he's saying to his disciple. This is how you're supposed to be. And if you don't have that disposition, if you're the type of person that when people see you coming, they turn around and want to walk the other way because they know you're going to gripe about something. You're going to talk about your hurts and pains. You're going to talk about this conspiracy over here and this and that. And you just are always negative, negative, negative. You see the bad side of everything. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. I wished I could see you right now. I wish I could just talk to every person face to face. There are many of you that are uncomfortable and you say, well, I don't agree with this. This is what Paul is telling his disciple that you need to be an example in your mental disposition, in your spirit attitude. And there are some of you that are a poor advertisement for God. I'm not saying that to hurt you. I don't get any satisfaction out of it. I'm just trying to help you to realize this is why you aren't being the blessing and you aren't seeing God flow through you because your attitude stinks. You will never go higher in your altitude than you go in your attitude. You're going to have to get your attitude straight. Man, we could talk about that for a long time. The next thing, it says you need to be an example in faith. Did you know a true disciple of the Lord Jesus is a person who ought to have faith? And I tell you, faith is rare in our culture today. We live in an unbelief culture. People just gravitate towards bad news, towards believing the worst of everything. It's pessimism. It's a skepticism. And it just permeates everything. I tell you, there is so much unbelief and doubt that when somebody begins to start believing God, everybody thinks you're a fanatic, that you're over the top. I tell you what, there's not very many people walking in faith, but this is a disciple. A disciple is a person supposed to be strong in faith, and that doesn't just come automatically. You have to learn. You have to grow in your faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It's not just natural. Man, it takes effort to walk in faith, but this is a characteristic of a disciple. The next thing it mentions is impurity. And man, I would love to talk about that for a week or two. You know, I believe in the grace of God. I was just reading this morning about Jesus taking the woman caught in the very act of adultery and how they wanted to kill her and he didn't condemn her. He says, where are your accusers? Does no man condemn you? And she said, no man, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Man, Jesus didn't even rebuke her. He didn't preach at her. I believe in grace. He extended grace towards this woman. And I believe that God doesn't deal with us based on our performance. I believe that with all of my heart. But does that mean that we're supposed to take His grace 
and just live an ungodly lifestyle? I tell you, it seems like that there are... I had one couple come and they gave me an offering for our new project at the sanctuary. And they have been partners with us for 30-something years. And they were just talking about the way that the ministry had been a blessing. And then they said, you know what? We have been around for 40 years, I think it was, in the Lord and serving and supporting ministries. And they said, there are we have just seen ministry after ministry after ministry that we've supported get off the rails, wind up divorcing their mate, getting into trouble for the way that they handle finances, wind up having an affair with some young man someplace or whatever. And they were just thanking me for staying straight. And I appreciated it and I thanked them. But I thought, how tragic that to have somebody who just stays with your wife and loves your wife and loves your kids and doesn't steal money, that that is the exception rather than the rule. Actually, it's not the exception. There's a lot of godly people that are pastoring churches, but it seems like that the ones who are visible, that it's just been a lot. It's You know, when you get to where people are really responding to you, it tends to go to most people's head and they somehow or another think that they don't have to live by the rules. This is saying that you need to be an example in purity. I personally believe that the requirements for a bishop over in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, where it lists all of these things. It's not saying that if you don't rule your family well, if you don't stay married to one wife, if you don't do all of these things, have a good report. It doesn't mean that you can't share your faith and minister to someone, but it is saying that a person who is in the position of leadership, who is the point man, who's going to bear the brunt of the criticism of the unbelievers, that the people that we put into leadership ought to be examples not examples of how bad you can be and still be used by God, but rather an example of people who've had their life changed and, and who glorify God in their actions. And I believe that a true disciple, even though I believe in the grace of God and you do not have to earn God's favor, we ought to be so thankful for God's grace in our life that, man, we live a holier example than anybody who's under legalism and condemnation. We ought to be godly. Man, we ought to be living a holy life. That's powerful. In the next verse, it says in verse 13, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Here's another sign of a disciple. And I've already talked about this in um, John chapter 8 and verse 31. Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. A true disciple is a person that gives attendance to reading. You are studying the Word of God. A disciple is a person that never really reaches their end goal. They just head towards it, and until the day they die, they are still becoming more like Jesus. They're still learning the Word of God. A true disciple is a person that continues in the Word, or as he was telling Timothy, you need to stay in the Word. You need to give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. You know, the word doctrine right here is talking about a belief system, but it's implying that it is systematic, consistent. In other words, instead of just having a truth over here and this truth over here, you connect them all together and you form systems of belief. You come up with impressions about God that this is who He is. And it is a doctrine. 
This is, this is directly referring to discipleship. And again, very few people have a consistent doctrine. They might say that, you know, God does this one time and then the next time this, and it's totally uh, contradictory, and they just don't have a thought-out doctrine. And because of it, they're like the wave of the sea. They're driven with the wind and tossed. They're up and down. They believe and disbelieve. Again, this is inferring that there needs to be a discipline or a discipleship in a person's life. In verse 14, it talks about the Holy Spirit. And it says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. There are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if you are going to be a true disciple of the Lord, you need to get into the Holy Spirit. Or better way of saying that is you need to get the Holy Spirit into you and you need to start flowing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, I could spend weeks talking about this, but you need the gift of speaking in tongues. It is a powerful, powerful gift. And I don't believe you are going to be an effective, mature disciple without the Holy Spirit. And one of those gifts that he brings is speaking in tongues. And this also mentions the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. You can actually impart things to people. You know, Joe Nay, the man that I've mentioned that was kind of like a mentor to me, he wasn't a real close mentor. At first, we fellowshiped together a lot. But then I went to Vietnam, and when I got out, basically our relationship was pretty much over. But I went to his meetings, and I sat under him, and I began to get his tapes and listened, and I was mentored from afar. And did you know that for, I don't even know, 15, maybe as many as 20 years, our relationship was basically over. We both went our own ways. Then God put us back together. I was uh, uh, partly responsible for getting him back into the ministry. And I invited Joe up at one of my minister's conferences to minister. And when he started ministering, it was, it was scary to me because it was like watching myself. And I was shocked at how much I was like him and how I had the same approach towards things and it was just it was really amazing it was startling to me and as I sat there and listened to him I thought you know what there was more of Joe that got into me than I realized he made a huge impartation into my into my life and this is what this is talking about don't neglect this gift that was given unto thee by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery you can pick things up from people by being around them that you aren't even conscious of I never consciously tried to minister like Joe Nay. But you know what? I hung around him. I listened to so much of his teaching that a lot of it began to happen. There is an impartation. In the next verse, it says you have to meditate upon these things and give yourself wholly to them that your property may appear to all. This is another truth of discipleship is that there needs to be an absolute total commitment to these things. If you want... If your goal is to just make money and become famous and be a movie star, a singer, or whatever. And if that is your real focus and discipleship is a secondary thing, your providing won't appear to all. If you really want to reach your full potential in the Lord and fulfill your spiritual gifts and accomplish what God has called you to do, you are going to have to give yourself 100% to it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't work a job. It doesn't mean you can't raise a family. I'm not saying that that's the only thing you do, but it has to overshadow everything else. It has to be a priority. 
even when you're working your job or whatever, your mind needs to be stayed upon the Lord, and this needs to be your goal. And that's what he's talking about here. And then in the 16th verse, he says, Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Again, doctrine is talking about a systematic study. This is talking about discipleship. And he basically says, you got to first of all get this stuff working in you before you can save anybody else. It says, Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing so thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Sometimes people are so concerned about trying to reach other people that they don't reach themselves. They want everybody else to have a relationship with God. And if you aren't careful, you can get to where you put more time into helping other people than you do in your personal relationship with God. Another point of discipleship is that you need to be able to live it, not only preach it. And on and on we could go. I went through some of these things very quickly. You know, one other thing I'd like to do, and I just want to relate this, that when, you know, like I said, the Lord put this on my heart 43 years ago to start making disciples. It's why I became a teacher instead of a preacher. I've already talked about all of these things. And the results that I'm seeing now just far outweigh anything that we've ever done. And it's because we are now discipling people to a greater degree than we ever have. And God has spoken to me to step this up. We're reorganizing everything so that we're going to line things up that if a person needs to be discipled in the area of healing, we're going to have just step 1 through 15 or whatever material I know about it. And same thing in finances and relationships and just all of these things. We're trying to reorganize our whole ministry and make it just available so that people can get the information and the growth and the maturity that they need. But our Bible school has become one of the major ways of doing this. And um, I just feel like it's appropriate today. We've been talking about discipleship. And I want to share with you a little DVD that my television crew has put together about what we're doing. We have to go to the next level. Right now, we have a facility that can accommodate about 500 people maximum. And we now are at 400, over 400. We are just about maxed out. Using the facility next door from a local church that I've been friends with the pastor for many decades. We're going to be able to extend our time here a little bit, but it's just time that we've got to do something. And so anyway, this DVD will explain a lot about what's happening because really this is discipleship. This is what we're talking about. And I I honestly believe that God has now given me a vehicle that we could literally impact the world through Making Disciples right here in Colorado Springs. And the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Until 1994, starting a Bible college was the last thing on Andrew's mind. However, the Lord had a plan. He imprinted 2 Timothy 2.2 on Andrew's heart. Paul, writing to Timothy, told him to take the things that he had learned and commit them to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. This scripture captures the heart of something called discipleship. Disciples are students taught by a mentor who in turn are able to teach based on a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
Jesus didn't call his followers to make converts. He empowered them to make disciples. And so, in 1994, Karis Bible College opened its doors. This two-year school of practical Christianity graduated a first class of 33 disciples in 1996. Fourteen more graduating classes have followed, with Karis Bible College graduates going from Colorado Springs into the whole world. Making Disciples Meet Karis Bible College graduate Carrie Pickett, class of 1999. Carrie has established dozens of Bible schools across Russia, with the goal to establish 1,500 in the next 10 years. I remember I used to carry around my Bible. I didn't understand it, but I carried it around with me because I knew that one day I would be able to teach this. So when I came up here, I remember sitting in on one class that Andrew taught, and then I sat in on a second class that another teacher taught, and I took so many pages of notes and got so much revelation and felt so much peace and excitement about the Word. At that moment, I said, this is where I'm going to school. I didn't find out anything else of how long it was, how much it was, anything like that. I just knew this is the place for me because more than a missions program and you know all this practical training and some of these other programs, I knew that the Word is what I needed. With over a decade of experience in Russia, Carrie directs Karis Bible Training Center, St. Petersburg, with her husband, Mike. She also directed the recent launch of Andrew Womack TV in the Russian language, broadcast daily across the 11 time zones of this vast mission field, as well as to Russian-speaking communities around the world. God has given us a plan, and He's given us the tools through Andrew, and we're seeing people change forever. Meet Karis Bible College graduate Leland Shores, class of 2004. Andrew's school, everything that we learned is fundamentally based on the concept of discipleship. Leland has discipled hundreds of pastors in Uganda for more than five years, culminating in the opening of Karis Bible College, Kampala. He also directs the Andrew Womack Bookstore, where discipleship is a daily way of life. Me and Dad were going to India. It was absolute. We had this idea that we were going to have packs on our backs. And Bibles in our hands. And we were going to go preaching in the remote villages where the name of Christ has never been heard. Meet Karis Bible College graduates Russ, David, and Judith Forgeston, class of 2007. In just two years, this extended family of disciples has established Karis Bible College, Chennai, India, with 60 first-year students, while managing 162 micro-credit loans for small businesses among the city's poor. With these and so many other CBC disciples working in ministries and as individual disciples around the world, the real size of the harvest is almost impossible to imagine. It is said you can count the number of seeds in an apple, but you can never count the number of apples in a single seed. From humble beginnings in 1994, Karis Bible College Colorado Springs has experienced growth beyond expectations. The 2008-2009 school year alone saw a 45% increase in enrollment. And the growth continued in the 2009-2010 school year, with more than 400 students attending classes in our ministry building. 
475 students are expected for the 2010-2011 school year. Thanks to the generosity of a church next door, the school will gain much needed parking space this year. But there is a limit. Soon, the Colorado Springs Fire Marshal will be able to force CBC to turn students away for inadequate classroom space. This is the challenge we share with the partners and friends of Andrew Womack Ministries. Will we find a way to accommodate the growth of Karis Bible College? Or will we one day find ourselves saying no to another Kerry Pickett? Another Leland Shores? Another Russ, David, or Judith Forgeston? I don't believe that it's God's will for us to turn any students away. I mean, we debated this and we considered all of our options and actually considered breaking the school up into pieces, into limiting enrollment, but I just believe that the need is so big that God wants us to do everything we can to help meet that need and send disciples out that will make a difference in our world. So we began a process, and I haven't got time to share all of it, but it's a miracle what God did. And God led us to this property where I'm standing, and we literally got this property for pennies on a dollar. It would have cost us five to six times as much money to get something with less potential than to get what we've got. I believe it's a godsend. I believe that the Lord directed us to it, and I am confident that this is God's direction for this ministry. But I need your help. I'm asking you to join me. Jamie and I can't do this by ourselves. It's our partners that have brought us to this place of unlimited potential where we literally can impact the world. And I ask you to consider becoming a part of this so that we will never have to say no to a student, so that we'll be able to train people up and send them around the world, and together we are going to make a difference. And I pray that that blesses you. I don't know, you know, people's perception about things, they sometimes are very skeptical and wonder about, am I building my own kingdom or all of these kind of things. And I don't have any way to convince you. I just have to tell you that I really believe God has led me to do this. I believe that over 43 years of ministry, that God has brought me to a place to where I now have an influence in the body of Christ and over these people, especially that come to our Bible college, that we are making disciples. We have results. You know, you saw on this video, this DVD about Carrie Pickett and Leland Shores. And there are just many, many other, all the Forgestons. And we've got people in um, South Africa and Belize and in England and all over the world. We've got people that are being raised up and the potential is just tremendous. But they have to be trained. You know, you can either go through the school of hard knocks or you can go to a school and learn at somebody else's expense. But everybody has to be trained. I went through the school of hard knocks. And if you survive, it makes a great testimony. But you know what? I believe that I could have learned things a lot easier if I would have had somebody there to disciple me. I mean, it can be done. I, in a sense, discipled myself by watching people from afar and taking their materials and just meditating in it and using those things as a springboard into the Word of God. And so it can be done. But you know, it's not really the way that the Lord established it. To be a disciple 
means that you are a pupil. A pupil is a person that has a teacher. If you are self-taught, it's really not discipleship. It's a form of discipleship. Abraham Lincoln was self-taught, never went to school. He taught himself and, you know, he prospered and became president of the United States. But that's the exception rather than the rule. Actually, you should have a teacher, a mentor that leads you into this. And anyway, I say all of this to say that ever since the Lord touched my life, I have been trying to disciple people. And, you know, there was actually a situation where I was talking on this. This has been, I don't know, 25 years ago. And I was talking about making disciples. And I had a man who heard me speak in a meeting and he wrote me a letter and he basically told me some of the problems that he was having in his life and that he heard me speak on this and he says, God spoke to me that you are to disciple me. And he says, I want to come out to Colorado and I want to just follow you around. I want to go home with you. I want to do everything. And he just wanted to shadow me and have me disciple him. And you know what? At that time, I certainly did not want to invite this guy into my home. That wasn't appropriate. Uh, I didn't have a Bible school. I didn't have any way to really meet this guy's need. And so I never actually responded to his letter. But did you know that that bore witness with my heart that God wanted me to be discipling people in a one-on-one or in a uh, situation much more intimate or much more detailed than television or just listening to a CD. And I actually left this man's letter on my desk for three years. And I mean, I'd clean off everything else, but I'd leave that there because I said, God, I know that I need to be doing this. I know that this is what you've called me to do, and I'm making efforts to do it through my CDs and through all these other things. But God, I've got, there's got to be another way to make disciples. And I left that man's letter there for three years. I can't tell you how many times I looked at that and thought about, God, is there an answer to this? And I was frustrated. I have discipled two people who are full-time in ministry right now who are very productive. And I mean, they are reaching thousands and thousands of people. I've discipled thousands of other people to a lesser degree through our tapes, CDs, radio, television, and things like that. But I just felt like that there's got to be something in between these two. Rather than just media discipleship, and I can't spend time, I, I just can't put my whole life into one person or into two people. I feel like God has caused me to have a greater influence. I said, there's got to be something that fills the gap between these two things. And I prayed about this for many, many years. And it's a long story. But in 1993, I was in England and I heard a man say that if you aren't reproducing yourself, then you're a failure. He says, it doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter if you're reaching thousands or millions of people. You have a limited time here on this earth. And if you aren't training up someone who can do at least what you're doing or even more than what you're doing, then ultimately your ministry fails. And when he was preaching that, I was saying, I know this. I believe it. I'm doing everything I know, but I just don't know what else to do. And this same desire and question that I've had for decades came back up. And as I was sitting in that service and praying, God spoke to me about starting a Bible school.
And, you know, a Bible school is the last thing I wanted. I had considered it before. I'd had people talk to me about a Bible school. But the problem I saw with a Bible school was that you gave people knowledge and you gave them a diploma, but they, they left there. And this, is, this may not be an accurate view, but it was the view that I had. I had met lots of people who had gone through Bible school and they were puffed up with knowledge, but they didn't have a real relationship with God. They were arrogant. They went out and they caused problems with other people. And I just didn't want my name associated with that. I felt like that that wasn't an effective way of discipling people. And so I had rejected it. And yet I was sitting in this service and God spoke to me about a Bible school. And when I first thought of that, I thought, but God, what about instilling character in people? And the Lord, long story, just showed me a unique way of conducting Bible school to where it's not just book knowledge. It's not just studying scriptures and, and passing a test. But there were things such as taking them on missions trips and putting them in a situation where they had to minister under a person who could sit there and critique them and help them about all of the practical things that we do. And on and on I could go talking about this. And the Lord just gave me a different approach, I believe, to Bible school that was balanced between getting the right doctrine and getting the experience and going out and putting it into practice. And when I saw this, I mean my attitude changed from one of I didn't want anything to do with a Bible college. And in one week's time, meditating on this, I got to where I was so excited about this, I couldn't hardly stand it. I came back and shared it with my wife. She wasn't excited about it at all. I shared it with my board. They weren't excited about it. And, and just because I basically pushed it through, we decided to go ahead and start. And did you know that the first couple of years, I'd say probably the first four or five years of our Bible school, it didn't turn a profit. We struggled. We were learning how to do it. And there's just a lot of things. But eventually, it began to gain traction. We had people start coming. We had to move from a 14,600 square foot building into the building that we presently occupy. And uh, that was tremendous. But you know what? We have now come to a place to where we've outgrown this building. If it wasn't for the church next door who has offered to let us use their facility, we would literally be at the very end of the number of people that we can accommodate and train here. And yet, going back to all of the things I've taught for the last four weeks, this is where God has led me. I believe that this is what my whole life is about. And I believe that God has shown me that He wants this Bible college to become a major influence with thousands of students here on this campus. We now have about a thousand people taking it by our extension schools, and then there may be as many as a thousand or so that are taking it by correspondence and by online school. So we now have thousands now, but I, there, there is going to be a time that we will have thousands of people being trained right here in Colorado Springs on a campus. And this is where God has led me. And because of it, we've taken some steps to uh, purchase a, pay, uh, a piece of property. We are in the process of building a first-class Bible school with dormitory facilities, everything it takes to turn this uh, from just a, you know, a place where we're sitting and studying the Word into a place that can actually train people, equip them, and send them around the world. It's going to be a 2,500-seat auditorium, and I tell you, it's going to be awesome. And so this is just basically an outgrowth of everything that 
I've been teaching you about discipleship. It's working in my life and God has led us this direction. So I've shared all of this with you today just to say that in order to do this, we're going to need people to help us. And I'd like to just unashamedly ask you to be a part of this. I really believe that what we're doing is unique in the sense that we are making disciples. There are other places that are making disciples, but then the message, the balance between grace and faith that God has shown me, and I'm reproducing it in people, as far as I know, it's unique. I'm sure that it's being done on a small scale someplace, but I don't think that anybody has raised up a major Bible school that is teaching these things. And I really believe that this is something that God has desired, and I think it has a potential of making a huge difference. You know, today, people are just, especially Christians who are concerned about the societies that they live in, they are just really bothered about the direction we're going. And they spend lots of time praying, and they want changes, and they get frustrated, and they call into talk shows, and they vent, and we do all of these things. I felt some of those same things. But like the old adage says, instead of cursing the darkness, turn on a light. This is something that I have seen work. I've seen it change nations. I've got to meet with presidents and first lady in other countries. I'm seeing nations change. We have testimonies by the thousands. This is an opportunity for you to do something that instead of cursing the darkness, will turn on a light. I don't believe one person is going to do it. I don't think I'm going to change everything. But I have a potential to influence thousands of people through this Bible school who in turn can go out and each one of them can influence thousands of people. And as a team, as a group, making disciples, I believe that we can change the world that we live in. I don't believe that we have to just sit here and be frustrated and vent that there are things that we can do. And it's not going to be only politics. We need to raise up disciples People that have the right message and that can turn the hearts of people back. And I really believe that God has given us that opportunity. And I'd like to just ask you to pray about your part in this. Pray about it and you write us. We have information our announcer will be sharing with you. And praise God, I want to thank you in advance for your help.